0: This is Democracy Now.
1: I think if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now, I really do think over the next four, six, eight weeks, we could bring this epidemic under control.
0: As health experts warn, the coronavirus is on the rise in 41 states. Many governors are reimposing restrictions after attempts at opening up their states, but Trump wants schools open. We'll speak with public health historian John Barry, who says the pandemic could get much, much worse if we don't take bolder action now. He's the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. The newly released police body cam footage reveals devastating new details of the police killing of George Floyd. In Louisville, Kentucky, 87 people are arrested after they held a peaceful protest outside the state attorney general's house to demand the arrest of the officers who killed Breonna Taylor. We'll look at the ongoing national uprising against racism and police violence and much more with Professor Mark Lamont Hill, author of Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Mark has COVID himself. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. continues to shatter coronavirus records, with 41 U.S. states recording increasing cases of COVID-19. More than 67,000 new cases were reported Wednesday, nearly tying the previous daily record. The official U.S. death toll is now over 137,000, shattering any record in the world. In Houston, Texas, the U.S. Army deployed hundreds of medical personnel to set up a COVID-19 ward and United Memorial Medical Center as intensive care units filled to capacity. Texas Congressmember Sheila Jackson Lee toured the hospital Wednesday.
2: Whenever you enlist the United States military for assistance, you are at a peak crisis period. I think that is important for everyone who thinks this is going away, COVID-19, anyone who thinks we're at the end of it.
0: The Houston Independent School District said Wednesday it will start the school year with at least six weeks of online classes, with a tentative plan to open classrooms in late October. In Florida, confirmed coronavirus cases topped 300,000 Wednesday, even as Disney World completed a phased reopening of its Orlando theme parks. In Miami, hospitals have run out of regular intensive care beds, with new patients moved into converted ICUs. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he's mobilizing a thousand medical workers to fill critical staffing shortages, but refuses to impose a state mask mandate. In Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey has issued a statewide mask order until the end of July, reversing months of opposition to a mask mandate. Alabama hospitals reported 47 deaths on Wednesday, another single-day record. The Alabama governor's order came after the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redford, said a nationwide mask mandate could save tens of thousands of lives.
3: I think if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now, I really do think over the next four,
1: six, eight weeks, we could bring this epidemic under control.
0: In Georgia, where the official COVID-19 death toll passed 3,000 this week, Governor Brian Kemp issued an executive order Wednesday voiding local mask ordinances. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, who is the first mayor in Georgia to mandate masks, tweeted in response, It's officially official. Governor Kemp does not give a damn about us, unquote. Earlier Wednesday, Governor Kemp greeted Donald Trump on the tarmac as the president arrived at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. Both Trump and Kemp wore no masks as they greeted each other, though the Georgia governor quickly put his back on. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's in self-isolation with COVID-19, said President Trump broke the law by violating her executive order requiring facial coverings in public. In Oklahoma... Republican Governor Kevin Stitt has become the first US governor to test positive for coronavirus. Speaking from self-isolation Wednesday, Governor Stitt continued to resist making masks mandatory for Oklahomans.
3: Not thinking about a mask mandate at all. We want to give uh, businesses the freedom.
4: I know that some businesses are mandating masks and that's great, but you can't pick and choose what freedoms you're going to you're going to you're going to give people.
0: Oklahoma Governor Stitt was photographed wearing no mask as he welcomed President Trump to a campaign rally in Tulsa on June 20th. So was former Republican presidential candidate Herman Kane, an African American cancer survivor over the age of 70 who contracted COVID-19 after Trump's Tulsa rally and has been hospitalized for weeks. Meanwhile, Walmart said Wednesday all its U.S. customers will be required to wear masks beginning July 20th. The White House is distancing itself from President Trump's senior trade advisor, Peter Navarro, who accused top U.S. infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci of being wrong about everything related to the pandemic. A White House statement Wednesday claimed Navarro, quote, didn't go through normal White House clearance processes, unquote, before publishing the criticisms in a USA Today op-ed. Speaking to an online healthcare summit, Dr. Fauci called on U.S. officials to, quote, stop this nonsense and get back to the work of fighting the pandemic.
4: I think they realize now that that was not a prudent thing to do because it's only reflecting negatively on them. I can't explain Peter Navarro. He's in a world by himself, so I don't even want to go there.
0: Despite the fact that the White House tried to distance itself from the trade advisor, Navarro, the White House itself put out opposition-like bullet points against Fauci earlier. Worldwide, the pandemic continues to accelerate. India reported a record one-day spike of nearly 33,000 new cases. Kenya's health ministry says it's fighting a massive COVID-19 outbreak at the nation's largest maternity hospital in Nairobi. At least 450 Kenyan health care workers have fallen ill, with four deaths. In the Peruvian Amazon, activists are warning the virus could devastate isolated indigenous communities after six coronavirus cases were confirmed among the Nahua people. The tribe was only recently contacted. Its members lack immunity to many viruses, including the common cold. In Brazil, the far-right President Jair Bolsonaro said Wednesday he's tested positive for COVID-19 for the second time since falling ill a week ago. Bolsonaro claims he's taking hydroxychloroquine for the disease, a drug once touted by President Trump that's been shown by several scientific studies to provide no benefit against the disease, in fact, could kill the patient who takes it. Brazil's death toll is now over 75,300. Back in the United States, President Trump Wednesday unilaterally rolled back the 50-year-old National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, speeding up approval for federal projects like pipelines, highways, and waste incinerators. Environmental groups immediately promised legal challenges. In a statement, Greenpeace USA, quote, said— The Trump administration's anti-environment agenda is a racist agenda. Dismantling NEPA is a blatant attempt to silence the working class communities of color who are resisting the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure into their communities, unquote. On Capitol Hill, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Monday he won't open new talks on another federal stimulus until next week at the earliest. Without congressional action, a $600 weekly boost to unemployment benefits will expire at the end of July for more than 30 million people. This comes as Harvard researchers estimated some 110,000 small businesses have closed permanently since the start of the pandemic. On Wednesday, Goldman Sachs reported over $2.4 billion in second-quarter profits, shattering investor expectations, and a new study by Americans for Tax Fairness finds U.S. billionaires have added $584 billion to their personal wealth since March, a greater amount than the budget shortfalls of 23 U.S. states. In Minneapolis, newly released police body camera footage reveals devastating new details of George Floyd's killing on Memorial Day, showing officers pulled a gun, swore at George Floyd to get out of the effing car, as he wept and pleaded, please don't shoot me repeatedly. The video also showed that medics did not appear to rush to Floyd's aid after they arrived on the scene. This comes as George Floyd's family filed a lawsuit against four of the former officers involved in his killing and also against the city of Minneapolis, saying it failed to properly dismiss officers with records of abuse and or properly train new ones. This is the family's attorney, Benjamin Crump.
2: The city of Minneapolis has a history of policies and procedures and deliberate indifference when it comes to the treatment of arrestees, especially
0: black men. We'll have the latest on George Floyd's killing by Minneapolis police after headlines. Speaking with Professor Mark Lamont Hill, who has COVID nineteen himself, in Louisville, Kentucky, civil rights groups are calling on prosecutors to drop felony charges against eighty seven people who held a peaceful sit-in protest Tuesday outside the home of State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. The demonstrators were demanding the arrest and prosecution of the officers who killed Breonna Taylor. The black Louisville resident who was shot inside her own home by police. Among those arrested, the president of the Minneapolis NAACP, Houston Texans wide receiver Kenny Stills, and Women's March co-founder Linda Sarsour. If convicted on felony charges, they could face up to five years in prison. Here in New York, newly released police body cam footage shows a police officer assaulting an unhoused man who refused to give up his seat on a subway train during the coronavirus lockdown in May. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance is charging— the victim, with felony assault on an officer punishable by up to seven years in prison. Elsewhere, the NYPD arrested 37 people Wednesday as counter-protesters confronted a pro-police march on the Brooklyn Bridge. Several protesters and four police officers were injured in the skirmishes, which came as Mayor Bill de Blasio signed new police accountability measures into law. Asheville, North Carolina, has formally apologized to Black residents for the city's role in slavery. A resolution approved unanimously by Asheville City Council Wednesday calls for investments in Black businesses and homeownership as a form of reparations. In Berkeley, California, city leaders are moving forward with a plan to replace traffic police with a new unarmed civilian force. Under the plan, armed police officers would no longer respond to emergencies involving unhoused people or residents with mental illness. Berkeley City Council has set a goal of cutting the police budget in half. In Bristol, England, a statue of 17th-century slave trader Edward Colston, toppled by protesters last month, has been replaced with a tribute To a Black Lives Matter demonstrator, the new monument features a life-size replica of activist Jen Reed, who stood on the former statue's empty pedestal, fist-held high, after it was torn from its perch and thrown into the harbor on June 7th.
2: For me getting on that plinth, you know, I raised my fist and I raised my fist to give power back to the people, back to the slaves who died at the hands of Colston. I gave power to George, George, Floyd, George Floyd and, you know, and for other black people who have faced injustices um, for,
0: for being black, you know. The statue was installed by a London-based artist within without permission from Bristol officials, though the city's mayor stopped short Wednesday of saying it would be removed. In northern Yemen, medical workers say a U.S.-backed Saudi-led bombing raid on a residential neighborhood Wednesday killed 25 civilians while critically injuring nine others. A local doctor treated several children injured in the airstrikes
4: the only injured victims are all children we received three or four people and eight martyred women and children and today is a painful and sad day for the free Yemeni people
0: The Yemen Data Project estimates the Saudi-led coalition has carried out more than 21,000 airstrikes in five years of war, killing more than 8,700 civilians. Most of the raids were carried out with weapons sold by the United States. We'll have more on this report tomorrow on Democracy Now! Meanwhile, the United Nations is warning of a looming environmental disaster in the Red Sea, where a stricken oil tanker has been abandoned off Yemen's coast since the start of civil war five years ago. The vessels, loaded with more than a million barrels of crude oil, four times as much oil as spilled from the Exxon Valdez in 1989. U.N. Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Mark Lowcock said Wednesday a spill would directly affect 1.6 million Yemenis. Essentially, every fishing community along Yemen's west coast would see their livelihoods collapse and would suffer substantial economic losses. About 90% of people in these communities already need humanitarian assistance. In Moscow, Russia, police arrested dozens of pro-democracy demonstrators Wednesday as they protested constitutional reforms paving the way for President Vladimir Putin to remain in power for another 16 years. The mass arrests follow days of large-scale protests against Putin in Russia's Far East that erupted after the arrest of a regional governor on murder charges. The protesters say the charges are trumped up and aimed at unseating a governor who beat a Kremlin-backed candidate in a 2018 election. Twitter says it's investigating a coordinated social engineering attack that saw the accounts of prominent politicians and celebrities briefly hacked Wednesday, the accounts of former President Barack Obama, Joe Biden and billionaires, including Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and Bill Gates tweeted out messages linked to a cryptocurrency scam. The incident raised fears over Twitter's ability to prevent international incidents and domestic crises as political leaders, including Donald Trump, use the forum to make policy announcements. And senior White House adviser Ivanka Trump is under fire for violating government ethics rules after she tweeted a photo of herself endorsing Goya foods while clutching a can of black beans. The first daughter captioned the photo, if it's Goya, it has to be good. Her endorsement came amidst a boycott of Goya foods sparked by CEO Robert Unanue, who lavished praise on President Trump at a White House event last week. Ivanka Trump's tweet appears to violate a federal law prohibiting the use of public office for private gain. On Wednesday, as U.S. coronavirus deaths topped 137,000, Donald Trump's Instagram account tweeted a photo of the president himself grinning in the Oval Office and flashing a thumbs-up sign over an array of Goya food products on the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report— I'm Amy Goodman here in New York with my co-host, Nermeen Sheikh, who is broadcasting from home. Hi, Nermeen.
3: Good morning, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. We begin
0: today in Minneapolis, where newly released footage from police body cameras reveals devastating new details of George Floyd's killing on Memorial Day and shows medics did not appear to rush to Floyd's aid after they arrived. A warning to our viewers and listeners were are about to describe scenes of police violence. Reporters who were allowed to view the video at a courthouse Wednesday say that after the officers arrived on the scene and talked to a store clerk who had called 911, they then pointed a gun at Floyd within 36 seconds when he was in his car. They banged on his car door and yelled at him to get out of the effing car. As he wept and repeatedly pleaded with them, please don't shoot me. Then in footage not previously seen, the officers are shown dragging him to the ground as he's handcuffed. This is CNN's Omar Jimenez describing Floyd's final moments
4: part of what he pointed to in the motion, which we saw on camera, was that Lane asked if Floyd should be moved to his side, to which Chauvin responded, no, he's he's staying put where we've got him, to which Lane says, I'm just worried about excited delirium, and it is in those moments, right after that, that Floyd is still pleading, please, please, please. Right before that, it is listed in the transcript, this part, the pleases seem to get weaker with each please, and then eventually, this isn't listed in the transcript, as I listed before, man, I can't breathe.
0: The attorney for former officer Thomas Lane requested the footage be released to the court as part of a motion to dismiss the charges against Lane until now only the written transcripts were made public. This comes as George Floyd's family filed a lawsuit against the four former officers involved in this killing and also against the city of Minneapolis saying it failed to properly dismiss officers with records of abuse and or properly train new ones. This is family attorney, Benjamin.
2: We are going to have an important conversation that continues based on this lawsuit that documents what we have said all along, and that is, it was not just the knee of Officer Derek Chauvin on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. But it was the knee of the entire Minneapolis Police Department on the neck of George
0: Floyd that killed him. Well, to respond to these new developments in the case of George Floyd's killing by police that sparked a national uprising against racism and police violence, and much more, we're joined by Mark Lamont Hill, professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University and the author of several books, including Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, From Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. He's also the host of a new podcast launched this week, Coffee and Books. Professor Mark Lamont Hill, welcome back to Democracy Now!, especially given yesterday that you tweeted, I've been fighting COVID-19 this week. It's been tough, but I'm managing and self-quarantining. Please wear masks, please observe social distancing. Please stop sharing conspiracy theories and bad science. Mark, let's begin there. Before we go to the latest video of Minneapolis, thanks so much for joining us. Um, your diagnosis of COVID-19 and, right now, how you're coping.
1: Uh, MARK Thank you. Thank you for, for asking. I'm, um... I'm I'm happy to uh, to say that things have been fairly manageable. It's 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 a very real thing, Um, uh, you know. Fevers have been intense. uh, Very tired. My body's very sore. Um, Dizziness. Weird skin pain. Things like that. Some things I anticipated. Some things I didn't. Uh, Fortunately, you know, my my breathing's been okay so far. Not as bad as uh, some people's has been. Uh, And so I feel very fortunate. um, And I'm very fortunate that I was able to access a test and get results uh, more quickly than uh, than many people have been able to. Um, so I just encourage people to, to observe social distancing and again, wear masks. Um, and it's not enough for me to wear my mask, you have to wear yours too, uh, in order to, and to, and to make sure that no one is endangered uh, as much as possible. Obviously nothing's foolproof, but uh, we have to do the best we can. So Mark
0: Lamont Hill, if you can talk about as your home um uh sort of viewing this through this prism of COVID-19 right now and dealing with this. Um, there is a surge of new information about what happened to uh, George Perry Floyd and his last moments. Um, we now see that the some reporters have gotten to look at—though this video hasn't been released—body uh, cam, police body cam footage um, of those last minutes of, uh, of Mr. Floyd, not Not him on the ground uh, with the knee on his neck. Uh, But when he was in his own car, when the police first came up, and his terror— when they came over to the car, cursing at him, uh, "Get out of the effing car," he could not figure out what they wanted. He kept asking this is according to the reporters um, who saw this, like Omar Jimenez, who, by the way, was arrested by police in Minneapolis, a man of color, uh, even though they clearly knew he was a CNN reporter, but he did get to view this video footage. And then the pleading that Omar described of uh, George Floyd saying, "Even as he's in his own car, please don't." shoot me please don't shoot me mark
1: yeah you know you you, you mentioned that the the, the lens of COVID 19 in many ways for the last you know four or five months so many people of this in this country have felt a sense of uh, unsafety of unprotectedness a sense that the state uh, does not have an interest in making sure that the vulnerable are are well taken care of and that sense of terror that many americans have felt um that sense of unpredictable un- unpredictability and violence It's something that many black people, uh, men, women, uh, girls, femmes, trans, cis have felt throughout all of our time in America. What you saw on George Floyd's face, what's been reported to see on, on George Floyd's face when he's in that car is a sense of terror of knowing that when the police show up, they're not showing up to protect him. They're not showing up to ensure that he's OK. They're not even showing up to figure out uh, how a, a crime occurred. They're simply coming to, to advance a, a very uh, familiar ritual of criminalizing and brutalizing and oftentimes killing a, a black body. Uh, it's what we see in that sequence is terrifying. It's disgusting. And it's disturbing that George Floyd, the moment the police show up, knows that there's a problem, but can't get answers. And like many black people have experienced when you ask a police officer, why am I here? You know, why am I being stopped? What's the problem that only enrages them further and leads to this death sequence that George Floyd tragically had to undergo? It's 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 disturbing. And I don't I have no desire to see that footage, but America needs to know that it happened.
3: And Mark, can you also respond to the financial damages that uh, uh, Benjamin Crump, uh, the attorney for George Floyd's uh, family, uh, have proposed? Um, He said that the—although they have not disclosed the sum, uh, Crump has said uh, that he hopes to, quote, set a precedent that makes it financially prohibitive for police to wrongfully kill marginalized people— could you respond to that and what effect do you think uh, financial settlements could have as a disincentive uh, for the police to exercise uh, this kind of, uh, of violence?
1: You know, I, I support attorney Crump's efforts to to to, to demand uh, some sort of cash settlement from uh, the state because the state uh, killed George Floyd. That, that's un, un, indisputable. Um, I'm not sure that long term, though, that will be the ultimate solution. Absolutely, within a white supremacist capitalist empire, you know, putting a, 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 you know a, a, a rock in the levers of um, of capital can always pause things and, and make the state respond differently. The state responds to its financial and economic interests, to be sure. But this is a deeper issue. In the moment that the police officer is faced with a black person, irrational white supremacist fears about black people emerge. And I'm not sure that a financial logic can stop that. I'm not sure that qualified immunity can stop that, although we need all of those things. I'm not sure that that's enough. Ultimately, we have to understand that as long as there is policing in this country, we are going to have people who are policed and criminalized in ways that reflect white supremacy, that reflect sexism, that reflect transphobia. And so ultimately, we have to dismantle and abolish policing. But in the meantime, these types of reforms could be helpful. I'm not against reforms that don't undermine abolition. And I think that if we can place pressure on the state financially, if we can place pressure on individual officers financially as a means of getting us somewhere, I'm all about that. But we can't confuse ourselves into believing that a financial penalty, that an economic sort of sanction is going to stop uh, police officers from killing the vulnerable, because in many ways that is part and parcel of what American policing is and always has been.
0: Mark, we're going to break and then come back to our discussion and go down to Louisville uh, to talk about what happened this week outside the state attorney general's house. Eighty-seven protesters arrested as they demanded that the officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor— be arrested and prosecuted. Mark Lamont Hill is professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University, author of several books, including Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Stay with us.
5: Black is like the magic, the magic's like a spell. My brothers went to heaven, the police going to, yeah, they're going to, hello. Operator, emergency hotline If I say that I can't breathe Will I become a child Line up to see the movie light, up to see the act The officers are scheming To cover up their cover up their no more questions, tell me no more lies. You're serving and protecting this deal baby's life. I'm very proud.
0: Black by Jamila Woods featuring No Name. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. Scores of protesters gathered Tuesday for a peaceful sit-in outside the home of the Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, urging him to charge the officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor. She's a 26-year-old black woman, an EMT, who is treating COVID patients, an aspiring nurse who was shot to death by police inside her own apartment in March. Several celebrities, including NFL player Kenny Stills of the Houston Texans and activist Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour, were arrested, along with more than 80 other protesters. They all face several charges, including a felony for intimidating a participant in the legal process. Hayes Gardner, a reporter for The Courier-Journal in Louisville, tweeted Sarsour, saying, quote, we are being charged with a felony as an intimidation tactic by the LMPD, in hopes that they believe we will never do this ever again because of that charge. As you know, we are not intimidated, in fact, very emboldened right now. For more, we continue our conversation with Mark Lamont-Hill, professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University, author of a number of books, including Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. So, talk about what's happened in Louisville, Mark. This killing of Breonna Taylor— This remarkable young woman who is treating people with COVID-19, an EMT, hoping to be a nurse. Police storm her apartment. She's there with her boyfriend. They shoot into it blindly, one of the officers shooting into the window of her bedroom where there were curtains. She was shot to death with eight bullets in her. Talk about what happened this week.
1: Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think you're right. Uh, just And I know you know this very well, Amy. And, and Breonna Taylor was an, extra, an extraordinary, remarkable woman. Uh, but even had she been unremarkable, uh, even if she had made many mistakes and even if she hadn't been a hero, uh, she still deserves not to die at the hands uh, of the state. And what we saw this week was the public uh, responding very powerfully uh, to— um, or rather, excuse me, with the people responding very powerfully to the state's failure to produce any semblance of justice in her case. When I saw 87 people were arrested, you know, we've all protested, we've all been arrested, and usually we get a slap on the wrist, usually we get misdemeanors um, for civil disobedience. But when you see someone getting a class D felony for uh, for intimidating a person involved in a legal process, uh, as Linda Sarsour said, what they're attempting to do Is intimidate protesters. They're attempting to send a message that no one should be out here investigating something that clearly needs investigation. You know, you have someone who dies in March, and until the public scrutiny is on there, we get no movement uh even though there's so many questions about this case from from why they were there to why he was wantonly shooting uh a, a gun to, to to why the police report had no information about even her being killed or even harmed uh to why the 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 the, the, the state attorney is, is acting so slowly and with so little commitment to justice uh and so you see people protesting and risking their lives risking their careers uh and it's a beautiful statement but we can't stand here as a public and allow them um and allow them to intimidate these uh, these protesters. And finally, Amy, I just want to thank you uh, for keeping uh, Breonna Taylor's case uh, in the public eye, because for so long this was not a story, and too often the deaths of uh, black uh, women, girls, and femmes go unnoticed. And, and so it's really important that people like you and others keep these stories in, in the public mind.
3: And Mark, could you also talk about the uh, attorney general, the Kentucky attorney general, Daniel uh, Cameron, who is the state's first black attorney general and the first Republican to hold the office in more than 70 years. He's been backed by uh, President Trump.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the great uh, anthropologist and novelist Zora Neale Hurston said, you know, sometimes your skin folk ain't your kin folk. You know, I don't look to 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 black people in positions of power to necessarily produce justice for black people. I'm interested in what their politics are. I'm interested in what their commitments are. And so when I see uh, a black appointee uh, reinforcing the very same uh, racist practices and policies that that his white predecessors have, I I find no joy or no pleasure in that. And the fact that this is a Trump appointee speaks not only Uh, to how how unlikely we are to get justice from this position, but how important it is in November for us uh, to do everything we can to remove Trump from office.
3: And Mark, I want to go to another case, Uh, the decision by the Manhattan uh, District Attorney's Office to indict Amy Cooper. You've uh, questioned this decision. Amy Cooper uh, is the woman who called the police and falsely claimed that a black man in in Central Park was threatening her. Mm You tweeted in response, quote, we can't criminalize our way out of social problems. These retributive approaches will not largely impact the powerful who will be most likely criminalized if we intensify prosecutions for filing false police reports, not the Amy Coopers of the world uh, you tweeted. Uh, Could you elaborate on on why you think this is so problematic?
1: Well, ultimately, I'm. Well, fundamentally, I'm, a, I'm an abolitionist. I believe in the abolition of of prisons. I believe in the abolition of police. I stand in the long tradition of people who believe this, the Angela Davis's, the Ruth Gilmores, the Maryam Macabas of the world, who sort of intellectually and politically led the way toward a vision of a world without prisons. And so at every opportunity, I look for restorative approaches. I look to not use punishment and caging human beings as our primary uh, response to social problems, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's being unhoused, whether it's uh, poverty, you know. Um, I, I try to find ways that are that are that are that are outside the prison and outside the logic of the prison. For me, Amy Cooper was an opportunity to do that, not given the specifics of that case. I understand very much in this moment that without any other mechanism for justice, I don't shame or, or criticize or even challenge people who call for the you know killer cops to be arrested or incarcerated. That's not an abolitionist vision for me. But I do understand that without any other tools or resources, we're left with, with very little other—anything else to hold on to with regard to the possibilities of justice. I, I want us to have a more robust and, a, and ambitious freedom dream than that in the long term. And in the short term, when we have opportunities to not use the prison for drug addiction, again, for, for, for dealing with with, with, a, with a dispute between people, to deal with someone asleep in a Wendy's parking lot like Richard Brooks, I say, let's do it. Uh, but in cases like you know, Breonna Taylor or others, I understand that we have fewer mechanisms and we have to do something to hold the state accountable in the short term while we look for a, a broader and more ambitious, uh, again, freedom dream in the long term.
0: Mark, we're going to end where we began, and that's with COVID. Um, The reports and studies showing that African Americans and Latinx people are nearly three times as likely to be infected and twice as likely to die from the virus compared to their white neighbors. Um, We just heard that the Republican white (coughs) governor of Oklahoma, uh, Governor Stitt, has tested positive for COVID. He was maskless at Trump's Tulsa rally held almost on Juneteenth, has to push it to the next day because of outcry, but Trump. Hasn't been tweeting about as he tweets against the left protesting in this country, is that Herman Cain, a major supporter who came to support Trump at the Tulsa rally, um, also um, has tested positive, has been hospitalized for weeks. He's the seventy-year-old former African American presidential candidate, cancer survivor. Um, yeah. Can you talk about the connection between President Trump trying to, quote, move on and not deal with the pandemic, as over 137,000 people have died in this country, um, disproportionately African-American and Latinx people?
1: Yeah, uh, we live in a country that renders the poor um, disposable. Uh, Anyone who we can't extract Uh, value from, disposable, black and brown people, disposable, trans folk, disposable. Uh, And as soon as it became very clear uh, that the people catching the most hell at at the epidemiological level, the people who were dying the most from COVID were people who were black and brown and poor, uh, there was a very quick move to, quote unquote, open the country back up. There was a very quick move to not worry about the, the, the health consequences for those who were left behind. Um, and, and that's something that Trump uh, has been very clear about. And we saw that throughout the country. I mean, and, and the same thing with the elderly. You had the lieutenant governor of Texas a few months ago talking about, you know, be, that grandparents should be willing to sacrifice their lives for the country. And so now uh, when Trump is walking around without a mask, when Trump is— Uh, for the last few months when Trump is is essentially saying that we should just open things up and everything will just be fine. He's essentially saying that some people are death eligible uh, and other people are not. And that is very, very, uh, very—it's a very, very dangerous thing. Herman Cain is someone with some sense of power and resource and access, and yet he is still vulnerable. The elderly are vulnerable. People who are immunocompromised are vulnerable. And people who don't have the luxury of social distancing, the luxury of working from home, are vulnerable. And until we have a very serious conversation about investing in the vulnerable through housing, through health care, through education, uh, we're going to continue to have this problem. And as long as we have an administration that's willing to open up schools, to open up the economy and to continue to let people die in the streets, as long as they're not white and privileged, uh, we're going to continue to have the, the moral crisis that is America right now.
0: Mark Lamont-Hill, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University, author of several books, including Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. We wish you all the very best as you cope with COVID. Uh, We'll be thinking about you and not just thinking, taking action. We, too, will be wearing our masks. And this news, Justin the U.S. just carried out its second execution this week, killing Wesley Iraperky by lethal injection, even though um, his lawyers argued he had dementia. The last federal execution before this week was 17 years ago. Up next, we speak with public health historian John Berry, who says the pandemic could get much, much worse if we don't take bolder action now. Stay with us. playing her alto flute as part of the Lattice concert series At Home in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As the coronavirus is on the rise in 41 states, the U.S. reported a record number of daily new cases Tuesday, with Wednesday's count just barely below, at more than 67 thousand new cases. The official U.S. death toll is over 137,000. Hospital beds are running low in Texas and Arizona, as several other states face increasingly dire circumstances. Many governors are reimposing lockdowns after attempts at opening up the economy. Earlier this week, California Governor Gavin Newsom ordered the closure of indoor restaurants, movie theaters and other institutions. Alabama and Montana have ordered all people in public to wear masks. This comes as Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt has become the first governor to test positive for the virus. He attended Trump's indoor Tulsa rally on June 20th and did not wear a mask. Herman Cain, the African-American 70-year-old former presidential candidate, um, also attended the rally without a mask. He's a Trump supporter and has been hospitalized ever since with COVID. Well, we turn now to a guest who warns the pandemic could get much, much worse if we don't take bolder action now. Professor John Barry is professor at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine and the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. In a recent New York Times op-ed, he argues a comprehensive shutdown may be required in much of the country in order to regain control of the pandemic. Professor Barry, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us from New Orleans. If you can start off by saying, uh, talking about why you believe this pandemic can get much, much worse, and what that bold action you think the country needs to take to turn it around. The United States, the wealthiest country in the world, has a quarter of the deaths— and more than a quarter of the infections in the world, even though it has less than five percent of the population of the world. Professor Barry.
4: Right. Well, the real problem will come uh, later when, in fact, Redfield, the uh, CDC director, said much the same thing a couple of days ago. Uh, there had been hope that hot weather would limit spread of the virus. Uh, Most respiratory viruses, uh, and probably this one as well, uh, do transmit less well in hot weather. Uh, Obviously, we are seeing explosive spread in much of the country right now. Uh, And unfortunately, there's every reason to believe that that the spread will actually get worse when the weather turns colder and it forces people indoors into poorly ventilated spaces. Um, you know, that standard for for almost every respiratory infection from influenza to the common cold. Um, you know, right now, obviously, we're not in a good place. I think when you compare where we are to Europe, it gives you a real sense of how bad things are here. You know, Italy was a place that seemed totally devastated uh, by coronavirus first, right now they have on average about 200 new cases a day in the entire country. Uh, yet their population is roughly equivalent to Texas, Florida, Arizona, Georgia combined. And if you add the cases up in all of those states, you're, you're talking about uh, probably close to, you know, well over 30,000, uh, 35,000 cases compared to fewer than 200. And yet we, you know, what that demonstrates is that the public health measures that are being advocated unanimously by every person in public health, that's what Italy did. And they got the cases in the entire country down to 200 a day. If we had done that The first time around, if we had brought our baseline down to a level like that, then we wouldn't be having a debate over uh, opening schools. We wouldn't have a debate over playing football. Those things would be automatically going forward with precautions. And the economy would be operating at practically 100 percent by now. We failed to do that initially. The baseline, you know, we did blunt the curve sort of flatten it, but we did not bring it down. So that baseline remained too high. And when we reopened too soon in many states with that baseline already high, it just took off. Uh, You know, it is, we're pretty close to being too late, but we're not too late at this point uh, to bring the thing under control. And if we don't, again, and when the weather gets cold and people are inside, uh, it could be pretty devastating. It's already devastating.
3: Well, Professor Barry, the uh, countries, Italy, of course, which you mentioned, was was initially the epicenter of the pandemic. Now, what these countries have done, not just in in Europe but also in Asia, in addition to massively expanding testing, is also using contact tracing. But that's scarcely been used in the U.S. I mean, you point out in a recent article that even where it has been attempted in Miami uh, for people who tested positive for covid, only 17 percent of those people completed the questionnaires uh, that would be required for carrying out contact tracing. So could you explain why you think this hasn't been one of the principal strategies that the U.S. has followed, despite the successes that uh, the, the, this strategy has resulted in elsewhere, and also whether it's even possible for contact tracing to work in a country with such enormous numbers of infect, infections.
4: Well, it has been a strategy, but the strategy has not been executed. Uh, again, it goes back to uh, the investment of resources. Uh, how seriously people take the disease. Obviously, we've gotten no leadership out of Washington. Uh, a few states have done a pretty good job on contact tracing. Uh, too many states uh, have not. Uh, and it, again, when the case count is, is pretty low, it's pretty easy to contact trace. When the case count is over 10,000 in a single state on a, every day, uh, no, that's not possible to do. Uh, public health experts have have recommended somewhere between some as low as 100,000 contact traces nationally. Uh, others have thought as many as 300,000 were needed. But the actual number that was employed, uh, the best number that I could find, was about 27,000, uh, obviously way below the minimum uh, estimate much less the the higher estimates of what's needed. It's just a question of resources uh, and, and seriousness. Um, and we haven't had that.
3: Well, Professor Barry, so even though the U.S. leads by far in the number of uh, infections uh, uh, with respect to countries, I mean, in, in an individual country, the vast majority of increases now are occurring in the developing world. Uh, Indian uh, epidemiologists, in fact, believe that India's case numbers will very soon uh, eclipse the United States. Now, you've pointed out, you've written, of course, an entire book on the Spanish flu. You've said that most people, more people died in the developing world then than because people in the West had been exposed to other influenza viruses, so already had some protection uh, against the Spanish flu when it emerged. Now, how much do we know about whether exposure to other viruses is a factor here as well uh, in COVID-19 in determining or influencing uh, mortality rates?
4: Well, There is some slight, indication that there may be some very, very small cross-protection from other coronaviruses, but that wouldn't be major. And those things probably have been worldwide. Influenza was a little bit different. Uh, You know, most of the developed world, people had probably seen uh, multiple influenza viruses. Uh, The 1918 virus was a new virus, Uh, but you still got Compared to, you still get some cross protection if you had been exposed to other influenza viruses. Uh, In so called virgin populations, uh, and this is untrue only of influenza, but of most um, viruses, uh, when people hadn't seen any influenza virus, their immune systems were completely naive. Uh, then you were getting instances where 20 percent, sometimes higher than that, of the entire population was being killed. Uh, you know, that that's not really the case here. This is this virus is, is quite different. And, you know, if, again, the common cold is is pretty general around the world. Those coronaviruses, uh, I don't think that there's indications of a lot of benefit from them.
0: Uh, John Barry, I wanted to stay on this issue of the Spanish flu. Um, You wrote the book The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. And I was wondering, as a historian, if you can give us a history lesson about what happened there. Um, And specifically—I mean, we're calling it, of course, the Spanish flu. But I am um, wondering—you write the single most important lesson from the 1918 influenza was to tell the truth. The Trump administration is doing exactly the opposite. I hardly learned about the Spanish flu. I certainly learned about World War I in school, but not the Spanish flu of 1918. And I wonder if that was linked to actually a censoring of this story, and if we could see something similar to uh, people trying to speak out about what's happening right now in this country as President Trump t- tries to tamp down that discussion and move on. Uh, go back to 1918, why it was even called the Spanish flu, not having anything to do with Spain, where it came from, and how it's linked to war.
4: Uh- well, of course, most of uh, Europe and, and North, uh, the U.S. and Canada were were at war. Uh, and in the warring countries, there was either censorship or, in the U.S., pretty effective self censorship. Uh, Spain was not at war. Uh, we're not sure where that 1918 virus entered the human population. It could actually have been the United States, could have been China, uh, could have been France, could have been Vietnam. Uh, but it didn't start in Spain. It was well established before it got to Spain. But because Spain was not at war, uh, their press wrote about it. In the warring countries, the powers that be didn't want any bad news, any bad news about anything to to get out because uh, they felt it would hurt morale and hurt the war effort. So Spain was writing about it. The Spanish king got sick. Celebrity culture then is now... Uh, got a lot of attention, and became known as Spanish flu. In the United States, uh, there was no Tony Fauci. Even national public health leaders were saying, uh, this is ordinary influenza by another name, uh, for the reasons they were trying to maintain morale. But nobody was calling it a hoax in 1918. The virus was much more lethal than what we're facing now. Uh, If you see your neighbor die 24 hours after their first symptom, uh, you know perfectly well it's not a hoax. Uh, All that happened as a result of this, the the lying that was going on, uh, was that people lost all trust. Uh, It spread fear, uh, terror in some cases. Uh, In in the worst places, uh, society actually began to fray. Um, And people died who otherwise would have survived uh, if they had been told the truth, if they had been able to recognize early on from the from the very beginning how serious it was and, and take some measures to protect yourself themselves. And those measures are exactly what people recommend today. Social distancing, mask wearing, wash your hands. Uh, exactly the same things. Uh, we know that they are effective. You know, as as you know, I was saying earlier, Italy got its cases down to 200 a day. Uh, Germany, uh, roughly 400 a day, in a, in a country significantly larger than Italy. Uh, most of Europe has a disease well under control at this point, and of course, in in Asia. Uh, The numbers are even smaller. Uh, Vietnam, which shares a border with China, hasn't recorded a single death, not one. Uh, So public health measures work, but you have to do them. We have not done them in the United States or too many people have not done them in the United States.
3: Well, Professor Barry, uh, meanwhile, here in, in Florida, uh, one of the states where cases are rising, uh, one in three children, that is 31 uh, percent, uh, almost mm-hmm. one in three children, have tested positive now uh, in Florida. Uh, and health officials are concerned that there might actually—it's too early to tell. Uh, we can't say with any degree of certainty that children— will not be affected long-term by uh, uh, getting the, right. the, the, the virus. Um, but I, I wanna go to another, you, you made the, the, the case that in March, that there was no indication that COVID-19 will become more virulent than it is right. now. Uh, but, but you did say that it's gonna come in several waves a, and become endemic. Is there still, I mean, that was three and a half months ago when it first began, uh, it spread here, is it still the case, does the latest research still confirm that COVID-19 won't become more virulent?
4: Right. The, the 1918 virus uh, was pretty mild, quite mild in the first wave uh, and then turned very lethal. Uh, but there is not the slightest sign anywhere uh, that that is going to be the case with uh, COVID-19. There have been some mutations that suggests it's actually maybe more contagious, uh, but not more virulent. Uh, So thankfully, uh, it's it's bad enough as it is. And as as you say, we're not sure what the long-term implications are, uh, whether there will be complications or or some damage to the body that does not recover or takes a very long time uh, to recover from. We just don't know. It's too new a virus.
0: John Berry, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Professor at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, author of, among many books, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. We'll link to your pieces in The New York Times, the latest. The pandemic could get much, much worse. We must act now. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Stay safe.